0: Sappy Music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. You know no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry, I see other guys who use Sappy Music. I you know Bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, May 22nd, 2012. We are going to do our light edition today. As I desperately try to catch up on several different things. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And so we're encouraging you to do the tough work. Get into God's Word. Know it. Learn it. Mark it. Inwardly digest it. Believe it. That's the idea. Don't have a view of Scripture other than the view that Jesus had. And keep in mind that uh, you know, our great adversary, the devil, is uh, he doesn't sleep. He's working very hard to destroy Christian faith and those churches that proclaim the gospel by, well, mixing in a little bit of leaven into the lump and getting them to tolerate heresy. And, and eventually that gives birth to a full-blown outbreak of bad teaching that never centers on the gospel it always centers on false ideas now what we're going to do for the next uh few weeks is um i'm going to be working my work w- well actually we're going to be working our way through a series of lectures presented by uh, phil johnson a few years ago where he does a survey of the ancient heresies and uh, i'll let him explain <laughs> early on in lecture number one he he kind of his attitude is, "Oh, great! <laughs> you know, we're we're gonna be l- l- listening to and reading about or learning about a bunch of dead people we disagree with." <laughs> That's a great line. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's not that really at all because as he goes on to point out, the these uh, heresies that he covers—the Socinians, the Arians, the uh, Judaizers, the Gnostics. Uh, I think he covers the Pelagians, too. I have to look at the list, but as he goes works his way through this uh the, this list of ancient heresies, he argues very forcefully and compellingly using great data that these heresies, even though they cropped up long, long time ago you know in christian history they 're still with us today and I would argue along these lines, okay, remember last week when we um uh, where I read to you the blog post I, uh, I had written regarding the biblical definition of maturity, uh, uh, of Christian maturity. And, uh, the idea is, is that, uh, one according to scripture who is mature in the faith is one who isn't blown hither and yon by every wind and diverse strange teaching of doctrine. Mature Christians, they, well, you, you, you they, it's very, very difficult to deceive them. Um, they have to be self-deceived, if you ask me, but that's a different story. But anyway, so the idea is this: is that if you were to think of heresies as diseases, and I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, false doctrine is 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 a form of uh, of illness within. The, the, the Christian church. And so the idea is, is that, um, when you were growing up, you were immunized against measles, mumps, rubella. You know, if, you know, if, if you're, if you grew up recently or, you know, I, you know, I'm thinking back, my kids got immunized against the chicken pox, you know, against polio, you know, things like that. So think of each of these heresies as, as, you know, as that kind of a thing. You know, it's like childhood diseases, measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, stuff like that. Is that what we're going to be presenting over the next few weeks, as we you know walk through this one lecture per week, um, is is kind of an immunization, if you would, against childhood Christian doctrinal diseases, and uh, the, I I think that's a good way to put it. Where you know this is these this is, this is immunization on your part, to, so that you are able to after hearing these lectures to identify, oh yeah, that person right there, man, they sound like a Judaizer. Okay. Oh wow, that's a Pelagian right there. Oh, those—that's a Socinian. Yeah, that's a Socinian heresy. That's a, you know, you, you, you get what I'm saying. Um, and here's the problem: in churches that are not doing their duty to proclaim and preach God's word and to mature Christians in both life and doctrine, what they're doing is is that they're leaving the people in their congregation susceptible to all of these childhood diseases. This would be like not immunizing your child and basically saying you're on your own. You know, I hope you don't catch the uh, you know the measles or I hope you don't get the mumps and you know well you know those chicken pox that you know those those were a bummer. I hope you don't catch that too. You know that that's kind of the idea is is that you know it's a, it's impossible for Christians to mature in the faith without being taught God's word without you know really abiding in the preaching of Christ and uh, and sound biblical doctrine. As a result of it, um, what happens is, is that these pastors in the name of relevance and church growth are leaving all of the people in their congregation, you know, basically susceptible to every single one of these diseases, and they're not lifting a finger to protect them against them. So, yeah that's you know, I just want to get that in there via you know my monologue for today. so without any further ado, here is lecture number one by Phil Johnson. We will be breaking halfway through uh, to pay some bills um but uh, here's lecture number one by Phil Johnson on his survey of heresies as he discusses the Judaizers. here's Phil Johnson.
1: Five major streams of heresy that have plagued the Christian Church throughout. It's history. Over and over again, these same heresies keep cropping up. And you'll notice that virtually every kind of false teaching you can name stems from one of these five errors that we're going to look at. These are the five major heresies that we're going to be looking at, not not all today, but over the next few weeks. First, the Judaizers, the earliest heresy. That's what we'll be talking about this morning. Then the Gnostics, Gnosticism, a fascinating mixture of different kinds of heresies, the Arians who denied the deity of Christ, the Pelagians who denied that salvation is God's work, and the Socinians who are the equivalents of modern day liberals. We're going to deal with these in chronological order, and we're going to start this morning with the Judaizers. Now I can hear somebody saying already, oh great, we get to spend the next five weeks studying ancient heresies from a bunch of dead guys that we disagree with. Don't get the idea that these have nothing to do with real life today. Actually, these same heresies, they're not extinct. They may be ancient, but they are not extinct. And these deal with real life issues that touch you and me and often try to infuse themselves even into the life of our church. We need to be familiar with them and we need to know how to refute them. So before you tune me out, give me a chance here. I think you'll see that this study is really anything but dry and academic. It's, it's fascinating. In fact, nothing that we could talk about could help you discern better between truth and error more than an understanding of, of how it is that Satan has infused his errors into the church over the history of the church. You'll see that the cults and fa- false doctrines that we deal with today, the people that come to your door and try to convert you to their religion are not significantly different from the same false teachings that have assaulted the church from day one. Now the first major heresy to attack Christianity was the legalism of the Judaizers. The fallacy of this is legalism. And we see clear evidence of this movement in the book of Hebrews. It's also a running theme in the book of Acts, and it's the very issue that prompted Paul to write the epistle to the Galatians. This was the thing he was confronting in Galatia. It was this heresy. And first, I want you to see why it is that this kind of legalism presented such a stumbling block to the early church. Then I want to examine a biblical account of how this heresy arose. And then I want to look at at how Paul refuted this heresy. That's a lot of stuff to cover, but I think we can do it in this hour. So I have three points. First, the rationale of the legalists from the New Testament scriptures. This is how they twisted scripture to support their views, their rationale. Second, the rise of the legalists in the early church. We'll look at the historical account. And third, the rebuttal of the legalists from the pen of the Apostle Paul. First, we look at the rationale behind legalism. Now let's be honest. The relationship of Christianity to the law of Moses has always posed one of the most difficult problems for biblical interpretation. Let me briefly show you why. Turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. This is Jesus' most famous sermon. And in this sermon, Jesus is doing an exposition on the moral content of the law. That's his theme, the moral content of the law. He's preaching to a Jewish audience here, and his text is the Torah. And what he does in this sermon is highlight some of the main points of Moses' law and expound on what these commandments mean. That's what he's teaching. Now, a lot of people misread the Sermon on the Mount and think that Jesus is modifying the law. If you're not careful, it's easy to get this impression because the whole first part of the sermon has this running theme in it. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And it sounds almost like he's changing the law, like he's changing the meeting, adding to, taking away from, altering various principles of the Old Testament law, contrasting what he's teaching with what they've been told. But he's not altering the law. That is not what Jesus is doing here. And if you're not attentive to what he's saying, it's easy to get the wrong impression, and that's what people have done over and over again. How do I know he's not modifying the law? Well, let's look at let's look at why people think he is first. Matthew 5, verses 38 39. Let's look at this two-verse section. He says this, and he's quoting from Moses' law. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you ye that, that you resist not evil... But whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, sounds like he's changing the law, right? The law did prescribe this eye for an eye penalty. That's part of the law. I'll read it to you. Don't turn there, but I'll read it to you from Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 through 21. This is what Moses' law said. If a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done again to him. And he that killeth a beast, he shall restore it. And he that killeth a man, he shall be put to death. So there it is, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle from the law of Moses. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving a different principle. Turn the other cheek. Now doesn't that sound like he's modifying the law? Like he's doing away with the harshness of Moses' law? But that is a misreading of this passage. Jesus himself began this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount by explicitly saying he is not altering the law of Moses. Look at verses 17 through 19. Now listen to what he's saying here. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass... One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he explicitly states that he is not nullifying or changing or abrogating the law. He's not doing away with it. He's not modifying it. He's not teaching us to disobey the legal principles of Moses' law. Therefore, that cannot be what's happening here in verses 38 through 39. Look at these verses again, 38 and 39. The eye for an eye principle was a guideline in the Old Testament law that was designed to limit the penalty that could be administered to someone who broke the law. That was the meaning of this law. In pagan nations, you kill your neighbor's goat, you could be put to death. In fact, it was true in America in the early days. Some of my ancestors were hanged for horse, horse thievery. It's true. But Moses was restricting the penalties that could be administered for these sorts of crimes. And he said the penalty has to match the crime. That's the principle. That's what the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle is designed to teach. In other words, punishments for crimes were not to be doled out by individuals. You couldn't just go and seek retribution against your neighbor if he did something to you. These were penalties, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth penalties, were penalties that were carefully imposed according to biblical principles of justice, which required one or two witnesses, remember? And it was the authorities, not the aggrieved individual, who was supposed to administer the punishment. These were civil laws that governed the nation of Israel. And the punishment had to fit the crime. That's what Moses was teaching. And that's where the eye for an eye precept came in. Now here was the problem. The rabbinical teachers, the scribes and Pharisees, who were constantly at odds with Jesus, these men had corrupted this principle because they were applying it to personal retaliation for other people's wrongdoings. They were using it to justify personal vengeance. You insult me, I'm entitled to insult you in return. Your dog chews up my garden hose. I bring my lawnmower and come over and deal with your garden hose. That's what the the Pharisees and scribes were teaching. Jesus said, that's wrong. In matters of personal offense, the law of equivalent retribution does not apply. The principle of mercy and long-suffering applies. That is, if you expect to be dealt with mercifully yourself. Jesus taught this later in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 2. He said, For whatever judgment you meet out, you'll be judged according to that measure. So this is what he's teaching. He's dealing here with personal retaliation. The law of Moses was dealing with civil penalties for crimes. So what Jesus says here does not alter the meaning of, or the standard of Moses' law. He's not changing the moral standard. What he's doing is, throughout this sermon is unpacking the law so that we can see the full meaning of it he wants to show us the fuller moral scope of all of these commandments the law says Matthew 5:21 thou shalt not kill look at verse 22 jesus said but i say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment the law says don't kill jesus says that means you don't even be angry verse 27 the law says thou shalt not commit adultery jesus said But I say unto you, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He is teaching us that there is a deeper moral meaning to these commandments than what is stated in the actual words. That's what he's saying. This is the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. The moral meaning, the spirit of the law, actually goes deeper than the literal meaning, the letter of the law. So Jesus is not modifying the moral law here. He's not adding to the divine moral standard. He's not changing it anyway. He's not moving the goalposts. He's simply explaining what the true standard of righteousness was that was always contained in the law. This is an eternal standard. It's a reflection of the character of God. And because God does not change, the moral standard of the law doesn't change. What God demands of us morally is based on his unchanging character, and that means it cannot change. So this law was actually in effect before Moses received the tablets on Sinai, and the same law remains binding on us today. That's what Jesus was teaching. See, it it is now and always has been a sin to think immoral thoughts. Jesus wasn't adding something new here. It is now and always has been A sin for one person to seek vengeance against another. God says, vengeance is mine, I'll recompense. It's always been a sin to seek personal retribution for wrongs done against us. So these are not new principles that Jesus is spelling out, nor are they principles that can ever be abrogated or done away with. And that's what Jesus means when he says that not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. What he's doing is clarifying For the sake of people who would misunderstand, people were going to hear him teach this. He knew it. And people were going to say, okay, well, the law says eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus says something different. He's changing the law. He's disagreeing with the law. That's what people were going to say. And so that's why Jesus began this sermon by clarifying that he stood fully behind the law of Moses. Not one jot or tittle of it was going to be changed by what he said. Now, let's be honest. This presents a problem because Jesus actually says... Not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. But if we look at the law of Moses, we see a whole lot of regulations that were designed to govern Israel alone. These were not eternal moral principles. They're laws that govern the civic and the religious life of Israel. The classic example is the law of circumcision, the sign of the Jewish covenant. Think about this. Starting with this law of circumcision... And embracing all the laws that govern the sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple worship, the laws that govern ceremonial defilement for the Jews, the dietary laws, the laws that govern Jewish holidays, all of those laws are mingled in to the law of Moses right alongside the moral principles. They're all part of the same law. And now Colossians 2 tells us that the ceremonial portions of the law no longer apply to Christians. Scripture is very clear about this. Verse 14, Colossians 2 says that Christ's death on the cross blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 says this, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. So right there, In Colossians 2, in one fell swoop, Paul tells us that all the dietary laws, all the ceremonial laws, all the laws that govern holidays, all those laws that foreshadowed Christ, everything that foreshadowed Christ, no longer applies to Christians. So this is a problem. How do we reconcile this with Jesus' statement that not one jot or tittle would pass away until all is fulfilled? This is a problem, right? It's a difficult thing to interpret. Hebrews 7.18 also says that there is a setting aside or uh, a disannulment of the former law. And in context, it's clear that the writer of Hebrews is talking about the whole priestly system. This is a big chunk of Moses' law. This was all established under Moses' law, and he says it's set aside, disannulled. So again, how do we reconcile this with Jesus' sweeping affirmation of the whole law? Jesus says not one jot or tittle will pass away, but Paul says, and the writer to Hebrews says, these big portions of the law have been disannulled. Theologians have tried to solve this problem in various ways, and I don't want to get too technical here, but I'll just tell you what some of these ways are. The old line, Some of the old-line dispensationalists used to say that this, they just simply said that the whole Sermon on the Mount applies to a different dispensation. You take the whole Sermon on the Mount and move it up into the kingdom age. So it's, it's a legal teaching. Jesus is teaching the law, and therefore it does not apply to this age of grace. That's what they said. It's irrelevant to the Christian era. Now, I don't believe that for a moment. And we don't have time to refute that view. But if you think that the Sermon on the Mount applies to some far-off dispensation rather than to you and me today, then I urge you to read John MacArthur's book, Uh, kingdom living here and now. That's the whole theme of his book. He's saying this message from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount applies to us here and now. Or you can read John's commentary on Matthew, and he refutes this notion that that sermon applies to some other dispensation. But supposing that we did say, let's just for the sake of argument for a moment say, so what if we did say that the Sermon on the Mount applies to the millennial age? You see, it still poses a problem for Jesus' sweeping affirmation of the law. Are we supposed to believe that when he said not one jot or a tittle shall pass away from the law that he, that he actually meant to put these principles on hold until he could establish his earthly kingdom? I think it's quite obvious that that is not what he was saying. And that in fact, that view actually multiplies the problems we have with this passage. Now, other theologians have tried to solve the difficulty of this by distinguishing between the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. There are three aspects of the law of Moses. The moral commands would include the Ten Commandments and any other regulations that govern sexual purity or, or other issues that are plainly moral issues. The ceremonial laws would be those laws that govern worship in Israel. Laws like circumcision, the, the priestly service, the holidays, and all of that. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 and Jeremiah 4 verse 4 indicate that circumcision symbolizes the renewal of the heart. You see, So it's identifying circumcision as a, as a law that symbolizes something greater. And under this way of interpretation, you'd see that in the law. You'd say this symbolizes something greater. Therefore, the portion of the, what the law is actually teaching is the greater thing it symbolizes. And that's not disannulled. Now, I actually agree with this view. The same view says that the civil law would would this would obviously be those laws that govern legal penalties, judicial issues and all those things that have to do with justice and civil order in the life of Israel. Such as those laws about cities of refuge, the laws that govern treatment of slaves and all those other kinds of judicial matters. If you if you want a big body of judicial law, look up uh, Exodus Chapters 21 and 22. That's where the judicial law is primarily in focus. Now, as I said, I, I'm, I'd be close to agreeing with this view. I think it's much closer to the mark, but it's still not without difficulties. For example, some of the civil laws clearly contain moral principles, and some of the moral laws are mixed with ceremonial principles. And there's a tremendous amount of disagreement, for example, over whether the Sabbath laws pertain to the ceremonial aspect or the moral aspect of the law. The the commandment about the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. So is that moral law or is that ceremonial law? So this view has its difficulties. I'll admit that. The biggest difficulty is this. You will not find this threefold division spelled out anywhere in Scripture. The Bible makes no neat distinctions between moral and civil and ceremonial laws. In fact, Scripture doesn't even use those terms. And for that reason, other commentators say that the law of Moses is all one package. It stands or falls together. And there's a modern movement known as theonomy or reconstruction, sometimes called Christian reconstruction. And they claim that the civil statutes of Moses' law should be just as binding on us today as the moral principles of the law. And they believe that the church has a mandate from God to reform government and society in order to institute all the judicial principles of the Mosaic law and to make these laws binding on society. If the Christian Reconstructionists have their way, uh, we'll pass a law that calls for the stoning of homosexuals. That would be their view. The Mosaic law stands and falls as a unit. Although they do recognize that the ceremonial commandments are no longer... In effect, because Scripture explicitly says that. Theonomists will inevitably cite Matthew chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, this troublesome passage, in support of their views. Just think about what Jesus is saying here. Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom. So, any way you look at the law... This is my point. Any way you look at the law, it seems you're going to have some difficulty explaining Jesus' words in Matthew 5:18 and 19. Is the whole law binding on us today in the very same way it was for Israel, or is it not? And as Christians, we have to answer, it is not. Because Scripture is very clear in Colossians and in Hebrews that the ceremonial aspects of the law do not apply to us as Christians. So the answer to this question would be no. The law of Moses cannot be binding on us Christians in the same way it was on Israel. But the Judaizers answered that question yes. They said yes. The Mosaic law is still in effect, in full. The ceremonial aspects, the civil aspects, the moral aspects all apply to Christians. That's what the Judaizers claimed. They claimed in fact in order to become a Christian Gentile converts needed to be circumcised. In other words, they were saying you have to convert to Judaism in order to convert to Christianity. Now, this was a very compelling doctrine for uh, a first-century Jewish believer. Imagine how these people thought because they had grown up in Judaism and they were conditioned to think from childhood that Gentile practices such as the eating of meat with blood in it and these kinds of things were abhorrent these were unholy unclean and morally unacceptable practices that's the way they viewed it that's the way Judaism had trained them to to view it and you get a picture of the moral revulsion that the Jews would have felt over these kinds of things when you read about Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 remember Peter was sitting on a rooftop and he saw a sheet descend from heaven filled with all sorts of unclean animals and Acts 10:12 says that there were, I'm quoting from the scriptures, all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Remember that incident? Peter was repulsed by this. It went against everything that he was trained to do and believe. But the Lord was about to teach Peter that the way of salvation was now open to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. This whole incident was the prelude to Cornelius' conversion. And Peter needed to see that a Gentile did not have to convert to Judaism before he could be saved. Now, let's look at the rise of legalism in the early church. Move on to my point two, the rise of legalism. And turn to the book of Galatians. And I'll warn you now that I'm going to ask you to turn back and forth between a couple of passages of Scripture, but I want you to see what the issues were that Paul confronted in Galatians. This Galatian church was probably founded by Paul on one of his early missionary journeys. Clearly, you can tell this from his letter, these were people that he knew well and that he had invested his life in. You can sense his passion for them by what he writes. And what had happened was, evidently, someone had come into this church teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And the church was buying into that view. So Paul writes the letter of Galatians. And after, just turn to the first part of the book, we'll just sort of breeze through this, give you an overview. After his customary greeting, which opens the epistle, the first five verses, he launches into the matter of the Judaizers right off in in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, This I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you to the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another gospel, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than you have received, Let him be accursed. This is the strongest language that Paul uses anywhere in the New Testament. He renounces the Judaizers and their message in the strongest terms he uses anywhere. He never uses stronger language. This is a curse. He's pronouncing a curse on them. Now next, he spends some time defending his apostolic credentials, starting in verse 11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to you is not after men. For I neither received it from man, neither was I taught it by man, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, he's he's claiming that the message he preached to them, he had received directly from Christ by revelation. This was the basis of his apostolic credentials. And in verses 13 and 14, he underscores his own commitment to the Jewish religion. He's reminding them how zealous he was as a Jew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And at one time... Paul was the most feared persecutor in the whole church. Why? Precisely because he was so zealous for Judaism, so zealous for the law. So not only did Paul have apostolic authority, but his status as a Jew was beyond question. He's in a unique position to speak to the Judaizers' error. Now, he spends the next, the rest of this chapter recounting his experience immediately after he was converted. Remember this happened on the road to Damascus. He was converted. And and here he tells us a little insight into what happened subsequent to his conversion. Some fascinating details about Paul's life. Verse 17 says, The first thing he did was spend some time in the Arabian desert. And he was in private communion with God. He just went off to be by himself in the desert with God. And it was there that he received the truth of the gospel directly from Christ. This is where he received this revelation, that his whole apostleship hinges on, in the desert. Arabia, you know where Arabia is, Saudi Arabia, you see it on a map. It's nothing, it's desert. It's worse than Lancaster. (laughs) And he was out there, by himself, getting the gospel message from Christ. He doesn't say how long, but this is where he received the gospel. And this was an important issue to Paul. He brings it up over and over again, that he received his message directly from Christ. Remember in the Corinthians he said, "Uh, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. That's a claim that he received it directly from Christ. And this, this claim of private revelation was the strongest possible proof of his apostleship. He had personally, you see, seen a miraculous vision of the resurrected Christ And he says that the most important training of his subsequent... He's he's emphasizing here the fact that he wasn't taught by men. He was taught directly by the risen Christ. And to Paul, and to the other apostles as well, the fact that Paul had seen Christ and received the gospel directly from him was the proof that God had commissioned Paul to an apostolic role. That's why he keeps coming back to it. This was the basis for his authority. And this is the also the reason that the other apostles recognized Paul's apostleship. They didn't the, the apostles never disputed Paul's authority. Have you noticed that? Other people did. Troublemakers in the churches he pastored constantly were questioning his authority, but the other apostles never did. Why? Because Paul obviously to them had a superior understanding of the gospel. Now he's recounting for the Galatians How he conveyed this to the other apostles. Acts 9.26, don't turn there, but Acts 9.26 describes Paul's first trip to to Jerusalem to visit the church there. And the people there were afraid of him because Paul was the great persecutor of the church. He's the one that had overseen the stoning of Stephen. And the church in Jerusalem was understandably frightened of him. Uh, Acts 9 tells us that Barnabas took Paul under his wing and said... I'll get you in. And he took him and introduced him to the church at Jerusalem. Introduced him, it says in Acts 9, 26, to the disciples. And this clearly means that he met with the people of the church, the disciples, not the apostles, not the leadership. Because here in Galatians chapter 1, look at verses 18 and 19, he says this, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem, this was when Barnabas introduced him to the church, to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days, but other of the apostles, I saw none, save James, the brother, the Lord's brother. So Paul stayed just two weeks in Jerusalem, and the only apostle that he actually met with was Peter. After this, he began an extended ministry in a, in a region to the north of Jerusalem where no gospel witness had ever been, verse 21. He says, in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now, I looked this up on a map because I didn't know where Cilicia was. But Syria and Cilicia are... Directly north of Jerusalem, directly north of Israel, north of what is today Lebanon, and it's the very southern part of Asia Minor, right where the landmass starts to turn west. That's Syria and Cilicia. And the chief city of Cilicia is, guess what? Tarsus. This was Paul's hometown. So the first thing Paul did as a new Christian, after he'd been personally trained by Christ, was to go back home with the gospel. That's what he did went back home with the gospel. Now, this was a Gentile region. This was not headquarters for the Jews. It was a Gentile area, and Paul stayed there and ministered there, he tells us, for 14 years. This was the first 14 years of his apostolic ministry, and word began to get back to the churches around Jerusalem that Paul was preaching Christianity to the Gentiles in this remote area. He says, look at verse 22, that he was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed. And he says, they glorified God in me. See, Paul's reputation was beginning to grow even back in Jerusalem. They were hearing about him. At one time, he'd been the most feared man in the Roman Empire as far as the church was concerned. But now word was beginning to get around that he was taking the gospel to areas beyond Israel, beyond the Jewish world, to the Gentiles, and the churches that were in and around Jerusalem were amazed by this. You can understand that they'd be amazed. Notice that during this period of Paul's ministry, Barnabas was Paul's partner. Barnabas was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Remember, Barnabas was the one that got Paul into the church in the first place. They evidently became friends. And Barnabas went back to minister with Paul up north. Sometime after this first trip to Jerusalem, we assume, Barnabas joined him in Syria and Cilicia. Now, look at Galatians 2. That takes us to the end of Galatians 1. Galatians 2, starting in verse 1, Paul begins telling about another trip that he took to Jerusalem 14 years later. After 14 years of ministry in Syria and Cilicia, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Now, there's some difficulty in in figuring out exactly where this fits in the life of Paul. If you compare this account with the account in Acts, this could be one of two trips that he took. This might refer to Paul's second trip to Jerusalem. There was a second visit that he took to Jerusalem, a very brief visit that's described in Acts 11.30. He and Barnabas went back with an offering to meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem under famine. Remember that? This could be that. The famine had been predicted by a prophet named Agabus... And that may be what Paul means when he says, I went up by revelation, that he'd gotten this vision from Agabus and so on. But that's not the view I prefer. There's some problems with the timing there. There's some problems with the account, this 14 years and all of that. It's actually the timing and the circumstances of this visit actually seem to fit better if we understand that this Galatians 2 passage is describing what is actually Paul's third visit to Jerusalem. And this happened during the Jerusalem council that's described in Acts 15. Now, turn there for just a moment. Now, we're going to come back to Galatians 2, so make a bookmark or keep your finger there or something, because we're going to keep going back and forth at this point.
0: Okay, we're going to pause this great lecture right here for a moment and pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address talk at fighting for or you can ask to be my friend on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian we will be right back
2: God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman.
2: Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. <laughs> You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Kwon I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay. Now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Rexquando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one three hundred dollar seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. <laughs>
3: You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's.
0: For more information about gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. That's G U N N A R S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. And thank you for your support. Dun, 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 dun. No, 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 no. All right, we're back. Uh, Warning, it was to the Judaizers that Paul said, if you preach another gospel, let you be in anathema, eternally damned. Something to keep in mind. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Um, if you don't already support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, right there in the center of the page. You will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. The crew membership is six ninety five a month. The, uh, the donate button allows you to specify the amount that you would like to contribute. And right now we are in the middle of the first phase of our summer bake sale. And uh, if you didn't hear my interview with my mother-in-law yesterday, then go back and listen to it. But uh, Chris's mother-in-law has made uh, bracelets uh, with sterling silver uh, charms of the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Cairo flag. Uh, for sale for the ladies of uh, that listen to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Um, we will have something more male-oriented in the second phase of our bake sale, but this is to help us make budget during the lean summer months. And so uh, the way you can find out how to get your... Uh, your Pirate Christian Radio bracelet for uh, that my mother in law made. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Bake sale is one word, and uh, you will see the details there. And uh, th- there was a total of 83 of them. I think that uh, we're, we have less than 80 left. So, you know, they're starting to uh, to sell. So, it, you know, limited edition, and uh, it's a great way to support PCR and fighting for the faith. So head on over there. All right, we're going to continue with our lecture from Phil Johnson on the Judaizing heresy. Here is Phil Johnson.
1: Acts 15, Galatians 2. I think they describe the same incident. And here's the historical background of what led to the first ever church council. This has to do with the problem of the Judaizers. Acts 15, the setting is Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are there, and we read this in Acts 15:1. Certain men which came down from Judea, in other words, these certain men were from the area around Jerusalem, possibly even from the Jerusalem church. That's what he means when he says they're Judea. These men, verse 1, taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. Uh, You can read a lot into that. I always laugh at how Luke describes these conflicts. No small dissension and disputation. In other words, they got into a big fight about this. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. The Judaizers said... Boy, if you're going to teach that the Gentiles can be saved without being circumcised, you better go clear that with the apostles back in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem church, at the prompting of the Judaizers, decided to have a council meeting expressly to deal with this doctrinal question and the issues that are raised by the teaching of these men, these Judaizers. There was obviously a difference of opinion even in the Jerusalem church about the propriety of what these men were teaching. Many in Jerusalem were no doubt in agreement with the Judaizers. And the loud voices against the Judaizers' doctrine were who? Paul and Barnabas, not from the Jerusalem church. So the apostles in Jerusalem wisely invited Paul and Barnabas so that they could hear all sides of the issue. And they said, well, we'll have a council meeting. Now, put your bookmark here in Acts 15 for a minute and go back to Galatians 2. Galatians 2, Paul tells us that when he got to Jerusalem... Before he met with the church as a whole, he met privately with the apostles and with the leadership of the Jerusalem church in order to explain to them the message that he was preaching to the Gentiles. He says this in verse 2, "...and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation," that is, the leaders in the church, "...lest by any means I should run or had run in vain." Now, what does he mean that he was fearful that he had run in vain? Some people have suggested that Paul was eager to hear from the apostles whether the message he was preaching was a false one. But that cannot be the case. That cannot be what was in Paul's mind and heart here. Paul was certain of his message. There's never any wavering in Paul about his message. He, And in fact, we've seen, he underscores again and again throughout his writings that he was certain of this gospel because he received it personally from the Lord. He told the Galatians, if, even if I come and preach a different gospel to you, or an angel comes and preaches a different gospel to you, let him be accursed. Paul was that certain of his message. There's no way he went down to Jerusalem and said to the other apostles, here's what I'm teaching, do you think maybe I'm wrong? That wasn't his attitude at all. Paul was concerned that he was he might run in vain. This fear of running in vain suggests that he was concerned that the doctrine of the Judaizers might split the church, might even put a wedge between him and the other apostles, and destroy what Paul had labored for among the Gentiles. That was Paul's fear. That was the fear that he had run in vain, that his work among the Gentiles would be destroyed. He saw the dangers of this doctrine more clearly than James or Peter saw it. And he was eager to convince James and Peter and the rest of the Jerusalem leadership Of the dangers of this Judaizing doctrine, and that's why he went to meet privately with them. Now, back to Acts 15. But keep your finger in Galatians 2. Acts 15, verse 4 says this When Paul and Barnabas were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. Now, this is still prior to the convening of the actual council. Verse 5 suggests that controversy broke out immediately. Remember, they're in in Jerusalem, the home of the Judaizers. They tell what God has done through them, and immediately the Judaizers rise up. Verse 5, certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. He says you can't convert these Gentiles to Christianity and not get them circumcised and not tell them they have to keep the law of Moses. Now notice that these leaders of the Judaizers, the Judaizers, the guys teaching this false doctrine, were converted Pharisees. That's significant. Paul would not have been the least bit intimidated by this. James and Peter might have. James and Peter weren't trained as Pharisees. They didn't have as much skill in the law of Moses as the Pharisees did. But Paul did. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he would not have been intimidated by these men because he'd been a Pharisee himself Now, uh, I wish we had three hours. We don't have enough time to examine this whole passage in depth, but just we'll run through what transpires here. Um, Verse 6, The apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. This is the council. It starts out, there was much disputing. Verse 7, another fight. And then Peter rose up and recounted what had occurred at the conversion of Cornelius. You remember that whole story. Verses 7 through 10. And Peter very clearly takes Paul's side. Verses 10 through 11. Why tempt you, God, and put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. I love that. See how Peter homes in on the crucial issue? Salvation by the grace of God. This is the issue. By the way, this is the issue with every cult we're going to study. Every cult attacks this doctrine. Salvation by the grace of God. That's what was at stake. That's what Paul was fighting for. The doctrine of salvation by the grace of God. Next, verse 12. Paul and Barnabas take the floor, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So here's the council. They have a fight. Peter stands up. Paul and Barnabas stand up. And then James stands up. And James is obviously the guy in charge here. Contrary to the... Roman Catholics who say Peter was the Pope, the guy who takes charge is James. Look at him. He stands up and he summarizes the discussion that's already taken place, and he gives a biblical basis for the conversion of the Gentiles, verses 14 through 19. He starts quoting Old Testament scriptures about the Gentiles would be converted. And finally, verse 19, he delivers the council's decision. He says this, wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Now notice what this decision is. Don't, don't be fooled by Don't Don't read it carelessly. They asked the Gentiles in the young church to abstain here from four kinds of ceremonial defilement, pollutions of idols, fornication, things strangled, and blood. Now, think about this for a minute. We know from Paul's words in Romans 14 that in terms of food, there is nothing unclean in itself. There's nothing you can't eat if you give thanks to God for it. That's what Scripture teaches. So these dietary restrictions that the Jerusalem Council puts on the Gentiles are not to be seen as binding commandments. They're not commandments that extend to all Gentiles through all times through the church. Don't look at the Jerusalem Council and say, well, they said... The Gentiles shouldn't eat things strangled, so uh, I better have kosher kosher chicken from now on. That's That's not the point. These were not binding commandments. What the council is asking by raising these four issues, they were not binding the Gentiles with the law. This is the whole point. They declined to saddle the Gentiles with the Jewish law. And in these four exceptions, they were only requesting that the Gentiles in the infant church, as a matter of deference to their Jewish brethren, abstain from the very worst kinds of ceremonial defilement. They were listing the things that would have offended them most, four things. These were not to be permanently binding laws on the Gentiles for the the Christians of all time. And with one exception here, they're not obligatory regulations. They're voluntary ones. So that the Gentiles, what they were asking them to do is minimize their offense to the Jews. This is the very same principle that Paul taught in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10 about not offending a weaker brother. That's essentially what the Jerusalem council said. We're not going to hang the law on the Gentiles, but we are going to ask them not to do the things that are most offensive to us. So the big question that always comes up is why is fornication listed here? After all, Fornication is clearly a moral, not a ceremonial issue. The other things are all ceremonial principles, but fornication is clearly a moral one. This prohibition against fornication would be binding on the Gentiles as a matter of moral necessity, whether the Jerusalem Council said so or not, right? And that's right. Yes, it would. But here's why they emphasized it here. You have to understand first century Gentile paganism. Gentile religions were shot through with immoral worship practices, Fornication was a religious rite in most of the Roman religions. If you've ever visited Corinth, for example, the ruins of Corinth, you can still see there huge brothels where temple prostitutes plied their trade as a religious ritual. This was part of the Gentile religion. Fornication was so deeply ingrained in Gentile worship that the council, I, I, I assume for safety's sake, included it in the list of things they expressly were asking the Gentiles to avoid. What this actually shows us is how abhorrent to the Jews was the idea of eating blood, the fact that they would place this alongside fornication. That's how much it offended them. And they actually categorized the eating of blood along with ceremonial fornication. They saw the things as virtually equivalent. But don't get so caught up in these exceptions that you miss the importance of the council's decision. This was a conscious, deliberate, summary rejection of the doctrine of the Judaizers. The Gentiles were not required to be circumcised. And the ritual requirements of the law as a whole were not to be required of every Christian. This was a monumental affirmation of the Apostle Paul and his ministry among the Gentiles. It was also a sweeping endorsement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's what was at stake here. And this council decision preserved the gospel from the Judaizers. Now, go back to Galatians 2, and we'll finish up here so you can take your bookmark out of Acts 15. Or Acts 15. Now, we've, we've looked at the biblical rationale that was given by the legalists, We've seen the rise of legalism in the early church. Now let's examine how Paul, his rebuttal to the legalists at the church in Galatia. Galatians 2, verses 3 through 10, Paul describes here what seems to be the winding down of the Jerusalem council. He's telling us the aftermath of this council. Paul had brought Titus, uncircumcised, along with him, evidently as a test case. And, and people will say, "Well, if this was this visit of Paul, why doesn't Acts 15 mention Titus? Because this was the whole point. Titus never became an issue. His, his lack of circumcision never was challenged. The council specifically and purposely declined to impose that regulation on the Gentiles. So Paul brought Titus as a test case. He was not compelled to be circumcised. The leaders in the Jerusalem church declined to make Titus an issue. Verse 9 tells us that the Jerusalem church then formally commissioned Paul and Barnabas as apostles to the Gentiles. And Peter, James, and the others in the Jerusalem church agreed to continue their working among the Jews. You'd think after all of this, the Judaizer conflict would have been settled, right? The council decided it, the decision has been made, you'd think that would be the end of it. But the danger still lurked. Think this through. Peter and James continued ministering in the Jerusalem church, which would have been overwhelmingly, if not completely, Jewish. That was just the whole culture of the Jerusalem church. They were Jewish. They would have had little or no contact with Gentile converts. They no doubt continued eating their kosher food, and nothing wrong with that. The council didn't say, you're not allowed to be kosher. And the Jerusalem church would have retained its very strongly Jewish flavor. They may have even forgotten about the threat that the Judaizers posed to the gospel. In fact, I'd say that's what happened. It appears that the Judaizers, these men who had brought this doctrine up in the first place, continued worshiping unhindered within the Jerusalem church. This is exactly how heresy often works. When you think it's been defeated out in the open, when you've refuted its doctrines... Then it moves underground and begins to work secretly. And that is exactly what the Judaizers did. They just stayed in the Jerusalem church and they were low-key and they continued to infiltrate that church with their evil doctrine. And Paul describes an incredible event that evidently took place sometime after the Jerusalem council. Verse 11 says, Paul and Peter were in Antioch at the same time. Now, Antioch would have been predominantly Gentile church. This was a Gentile area, a Gentile church. Peter comes to visit. He was eating with the Gentiles. He was behaving pretty much like Paul would have behaved. Remember, becoming all things to all men. To those without the law, he behaved as without the law. That's what Peter was doing. But then, some emissaries from the Jerusalem church came. Some messengers from James These may have been the Judaizers themselves or friends of the Judaizers. They were from the Jerusalem church. And suddenly, Peter's behavior changed. Paul relates what happened, verse 12. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. This was his word for the Judaizers, them which were of the circumcision. Peter was afraid of them. He didn't want to... He didn't want to start the the fight, I guess. So he just decided the best thing to do was not eat with the Gentiles as long as these guys were here. And Paul says, And the other Jews dissembled or, or played the hypocrite likewise with him, so much that Barnabas also was carried away with their hypocrisy. See, Peter was afraid that news would get back to the Judaizers in Jerusalem that he was eating Gentile food. And suddenly Peter and all the other Jewish believers and even Paul's own companion Barnabas began to withdraw from the Gentile believers. This would have been probably a very small thing, except it was a big thing in Paul's mind. And Paul saw what was happening. Verse 11, he says, he withstood Peter to the face because he was to be blamed. He saw Paul saw what neither Peter nor Barnabas nor any of the other Jewish believers could see, that this sort of hypocrisy about observing the Old Covenant ceremonies was actually clouding the truth of the gospel. That was the point. Verse 14, They walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. And because the truth of the gospel was what was at stake, Paul made his rebuke a public one. He says, verse 14, I said unto Peter, Before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and do not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? See, the whole issue here was justification by faith. Notice verse 16. Paul brings it in immediately. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ... And not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Listen, this was the whole issue with Paul against the Judaizers' brand of legalism. This was it. It nullified the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's why he opposed it. And Paul saw this as the heart of the gospel. You can read this in all of his epistles. When he talks about the gospel in Romans, he spends chapter after chapter outlining justification by faith. And he says this legalistic behavior was clouding the truth of justification. If a person had to be circumcised in order to become a Christian, then that ritual work, circumcision, was a prerequisite for justification. And if that's the case, then justification is not by faith alone. And in Romans 4, Paul points out that even Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Circumcision, he, he makes this point. Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15. He wasn't circumcised until years later. Circumcision, therefore, cannot be a requirement for salvation. It is not and never has been a prerequisite for our justification. Moreover, what Paul saw was that the ceremonial aspects of the law are fulfilled in Christ. To make these commandments, the ceremonial aspects, the dietary laws, all the the other stuff that went with the ceremonies of the Jews, to make that binding on Gentiles is to nullify Christ altogether. That was a big issue think this through now in John chapter 5 verse 45 46 Jesus says this Moses wrote of me Where did Moses write of Christ The answer is all through the law Many elements of Moses law prefigured and foreshadowed Christ These are like prophetic pictures of Christ contained in the law And now that we have Christ who is the substance of which these things were only shadows it's a sin to retreat to the shadows. That's the whole point of Colossians 2. Colossians 2.17 says this, that those laws are a shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ. And since we have the substance, to leave the substance in favor of the shadows is to nullify Christ and His work. The Judaizers were trying to go back to the shadows. They wanted to place New Covenant believers under Old Covenant ceremonies. Now understand this. The law about circumcision and animal sacrifices, and all the ceremonial laws were not nullified. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law shall pass away. He affirmed all of this. These laws were not nullified. They were fulfilled. They were fulfilled like prophecies are fulfilled. They don't pass away, but rather, in Christ, we enter into the fullest possible meaning of those commandments. See, these aspects of the law that were fulfilled in Christ have not been abrogated. They haven't been done away with. They've been realized in Christ. The thing that they foreshadowed, the thing that they promised has been realized. They have not been abrogated, and there's a significant difference. The fact is that we are, and in fact, we are not under obligation to offer daily sacrifices. I don't know of any Christian that argues that. I don't think even the Judaizers would have argued that. But that doesn't mean that the sacrificial laws have passed into oblivion. They were not annulled. Rather, what happened was, in Christ, the demand of those commandments was fully and forever satisfied, once for all fulfilled in Christ. This is in perfect harmony with what Jesus said, that not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law. According to Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law. He's the the goal of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, Christ imputes to us the full merit of his own perfect obedience to the whole law. He has fulfilled the law on our behalf. So, is the moral aspect of Moses' law still binding? Absolutely. Because the law's moral demands flow from the character of God. They're unchanging. They can't change or diminish or be nullified. They, too, have been perfectly fulfilled on our behalf by the work of Christ. We receive the full merit of His obedience. That's the basis of our justification. But the laws remain forever in place as the standard of perfect righteousness and holy behavior. Fornication and stealing and idolatry are just as forbidden for Christians as they were for the Jew under Moses' law. So when we say we're not under the law but under grace. We don't mean we're freed from the law's moral demands. What we mean is we're not subject to the penalty of the law. We can't be condemned by the law. We're not obligated to continue carrying out the ceremonial aspects of the law. We're now under grace. We're liberated to fulfill the law's moral demands. But those moral demands have not been abrogated. Now this touches the very heart of the Gospel. All that the law demands for for our justification has been fulfilled perfectly in Christ. There are no ceremonies or rituals left to be done before we can be justified in God's sight. Christ has already done the whole law on our behalf. That's That's the gospel. So we don't have to perform any religious or ceremonies or legal obedience or anything like that as a prerequisite to our justification. None of the works of the law can earn us any merit in God's eyes. All of the merit that's necessary has already been earned by Christ. And it's imputed to those who believe. Romans 4, 5, and 6 says this, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And verse 6 says, God imputes righteousness apart from works. That's the gospel in a single statement. That's what the legalism of the Judaizers Obscured. And that's why the apostle was prepared to fight this heresy with every ounce of energy he had.
0: Great lecture. Well done, Phil Johnson. Looking forward to the uh, the rest of the lectures in the series. So what'd you think? If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. At my email address, talkback at fighting or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at